Welcome back to the Comics Course, an offering of Miskatonic University's remote education program, offering Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History, as a publicly available podcast. Uh, I am your ever-persecuted teacher, Professor Hamby, along with my ever-persecuted T.A. Rowan. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Oh, it has been a week or two weeks or something um, I'll tell you, the news has really piled up, both, you know, here at Miskatonic and out in the wider world. Um, in the comic book world, Miss Marvel is apparently the first episode already out on Disney+, Plus, just shortly after the conclusion of Moon Knight. Mm-hmm. Uh, you and I watched Moon Knight together. I mm-hmm. thought it was pretty good. It, it was amazing. It was. Miss um, Marvel, I saw, uh, uh, apparently... A group of people who claim that they are trying to protect their heritage. I call them by the more easily and convenient term white supremacists and racists. Mm-hmm. Um, are freaking out and saying we're replacing Carol Danvers, a white woman, with a brown woman. And therefore erasing, you know, white heritage of comic books. Because um, as we all know, comic book characters are historical figures. Right. And, well, I mean, actually, they can be, you know, old enough. Uh, uh, Carol Danvers, however, is not the first Captain Marvel. The first Captain Marvel was a dude, and technically an alien dude. And uh, But Carol Danvers has been Captain Marvel for a good number of decades now. However, I should note that the series is Miss Marvel, not Captain Marvel. They're different characters. You know, it's bad enough being racist, but do you have to be just... Dumb fuck stupid, too? That comes with being racist. Okay, that's fair. I mean, but, like, they have different character names. And, you know, last time I checked the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they weren't running out of white people as characters. Um, right? Right. I mean, if we look at the tentpole Avengers uh, that kind of established the MCU, they were all honkies. (laughs) Right? Yeah. You're laughing. Why are you laughing? Because it's funny. Because I said honky? Yeah. Well, they are honkies. Um, <clears throat> now, more locally here at Miskatonic, we have a little bit of news. Uh, the second expedition ship reached Antarctica to rescue uh, Thomas. To- Thomas and find out what happened to the first rescue ship. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, the ship was found run aground. And they have not found anybody. Oh, that's that's assuring. It's not good. I mean, this many people haven't disappeared since the last Miskatonic, uh, you know, faculty retreat. The, the what they did find was that I was asked for some help on. Mm-hmm. Uh, they found a bunch of penguin bones and colored sea stones arranged in a large mosaic which appears to be the cover to Hergé's Tin Tin Goes to the Moon. Huh, interesting. Yeah, it's a little weird. <laughs> I mean, I maybe it's just a coincidence and it formed naturally. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think that's likely. Yeah, I think that's the most likely conclusion. Occam's Razor. Yeah. Um, in other news, my, firm, my current boss, actually, has been raised to the top of Interpol's Red Notice. Nice. Um, it turned out that he was dealing in very large amounts of obscure narcotics. 
which might explain why when I, you know, extended my office into his, I spent four days running in a circle, screaming, um, before collapsing. Um, it turned out that white stuff was not sugar, and I should not have been adding it to food the way I did. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, that's hindsight. Who could have guessed at the time? With the way he acts, that should have been your first thought. I don't know. Uh, you know, fortunately, a lifetime of ritual abuse to my entire body has pretty much inured me to such things. That uh, makes sense, then. Uh, uh, however, he is still actually my boss and is requiring me to send in, um, you know, my student surveys to him by email. And he's apparently teaching some classes by Zoom now. So, you know... Zoom helps all of us. Yeah, including if you're on the red notice on the run from law while still teaching 400 level classes. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently well, that's okay for Miskatonic. Weirder things have happened here. I guess. Uh, and speaking of weird, we are heading towards the end of From Hell. I think this is going to be a short episode today. You know, that's how this is sometimes. Sometimes a class is two hours. Sometimes it's 20 minutes. And today we're on chapter 13, lucky number 13, a return to Cleveland Street. Now, this is set in July of 1889. By this time, people feel the Ripper is pretty much gone. Uh, Cleveland Street is either in what was considered the region of Whitechapel at the time, or at least right outside it. And for those who don't remember, Cleveland Street is where all this began when poor Annie Crook met a, you know, Albert... Uh, Siskert, actually Prince Albert, and began their relationship, got married, had a child, all that stuff, and set in motion these events. And he met her when she was working at a candy shop after visiting a male brothel with the artist Siskert. In this, uh, we see a blending of history and fact. Now, I think I mentioned when we talked about Cleveland Street at the beginning that there was actually a Cleveland Street brothel. It was under investigation. Alan Moore obviously had read about that. And he took it as an inspiration, even though it happened, uh, the police raid on it happened after the events of the Ripper murder. He decided to take the connecting figure of... Frederick Aberline, and then wrap it around to the beginning with the meeting of Prince Albert, which he took from the night book, the 1975 night book. So what we see here is something that at the very beginning is historical fact, more or less, which is that Frederick Aberline, after the Ripper case uh, settled down because there hadn't been any murders in over seven months, ended up uh, investigating this brothel, which had a lot of well-connected people associated with it. And as we see Aberline observing the brothel from an apartment window, we see that his subordinates gave him one of those mad monk stick, walking sticks, as a kind of wind-up and memento of the Ripper case. I don't know if that's actual history. But curious... He decides to walk down the street and check out the candy shop and basically ask them, hey, you know anything about that place over there and the people that come in? And basically the guy working the counter goes, oh, you mean the homosexual uh, whorehouse 
Yeah, everybody knows about that. Mm. <laughs> and, oh yeah, royalty goes there. And Haber lines of light. Yeah, fuck, of course. Everybody but the cops knows. <laughs> Um, and this was Aberline's concern, because he figured that things would just get swept under the rug, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, and, of course, he's fairly bitter at this point, because he knows that the Ripper stuff was being swept under the rug. But he thought it was because the murders were done, nobody was involved except a madman, he was being put away, why sully people's names, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in talking to this guy, he basically finds out that there's wider spread knowledge than we, the reader, knew about Annie Crook and Prince Albert. This guy working the damn... So we've been through all these books, all this murder, all this dark intrigue, and this blonde guy working in a candy shop is like, oh yeah, Prince Albert uh, married the girl, Annie Crook, who used to work here, and they had a baby out of... You know, and they got illegally married and had a baby and stuff. And it's just Because <laughs> everyone knows before the people who should know know. Well, it, you, you know, it's like that line at the end of the first Harry Potter film, this is a complete secret, so of course everyone knows. Mm-hmm. And we've had all these murders and stuff for something that people know. Mm-hmm. Um, just nobody who anybody else will listen to because they're poor. You know, they're they're commoners. Um, anyway, Aberline puts this together. He puts together one and one and realizes, wait a minute. Mary Kelly was the friend of this girl, Annie Crook, who had the baby? Sorry, I need a little liquid there. And, uh, So he puts it all together and he walks outside. He calls a Hanson. He completely ignores his co-workers. He's supposed to be casing this place with charges in to uh, uh, the, the head of Scotland Yard's office and goes, it's about the white chapel case, sir. So everybody gets thrown out and they have it out. You said this was just goal, and he went nuts, and he killed people. This is about Prince Albert and an illegal baby, and basically the superintendent of the police goes, what the hell does that change? Mm-hmm. Gold did go nuts, and he is dealt with, and nothing else is going to happen. Uh, now, this is all an interesting combination of history. Um, it was shortly after this that Frederick Aberline retired from the Metropolitan Police of London, Scotland Yard. Uh, Not immediately. Now, there's a little bit of fudging here. In the book here, it makes it seem like it's almost immediately after. In history, it actually was about three years later, 1892, that he retired. But it is widely speculated, based on several sources, that he was very upset at the cover-up involved about who went to that brothel. Here... That takes a far back seat to him being upset about the cover-up of the murder of the girls in Whitechapel. Mm-hmm. But it's still a blending of that same essence. And they have this out, where basically the inspector says, you choose to make too much noise, 
and you're going to disappear too. Aberline says, we'll expect my resignation as soon as it's convenient. And he leaves and goes into an officer's only water closet and throws up. He's so upset. Aww. Goes home, talks to his wife, won't tell his wife what's wrong, but calls over Mr. Lee because Mr. Lee is, of course, the one who led them to Gull and shares it out with Lee and basically asks Lee, well, did you tell your wife about any of this? And Lee's like, no, I mean, what am I going to tell her? And he'll put her at risk. Aberline basically says, yeah, same. And so they agree to keep the secret. And we see that, you know, years later, by the second decade of the 20th century, they're still friends in retirement. Aww. They're burying that secret together because they were the two walking the beach together uh, at the prologue. Mm-hmm. So now Aberline pulls down a box filled with mementos. And one of the things that he looks at specifically is a card from the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Now, they don't follow up on that here, but the Pinkertons, uh, are you familiar with who the Pinkertons were? No. They were a detective agency, a private detective agency formed in the United States, and they were renowned. Many uh, uh, high-quality policemen and investigators uh, left the public force to join the Pinkertons, where they'd be better paid. Hmm. And they provided everything from background investigations to bodyguard services to whatever. And, in fact, when Aberline retired, he ended up joining the Pinkertons. He was actually sent first to Monaco to look for uh, uh, people cheating casinos, and then back to uh, England. And by 1994, only being with the Pinkertons about a year, he retired again. Apparently, it wasn't what he wanted. And there's been some speculation, I think perhaps unfair, about how he was able to retire at that point in his life and retire in a very nice place on the beach. And some people have said, well, he must have been paid off and getting annuities from those who wanted him to keep quiet about the Ripper. There are more likely realities. I mean, we know, for example, from a couple of cases where he got paid very lavish sums just to attend parties and talk to people Mm -hmm. as the famous Detective Aberline. Mm -hmm. And... If he did a a fair chunk of that, that would easily pay for his lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of it. That's this whole chapter. It's a short chapter. And I'm tempted, because of time allowed, to go into chapter 14, Goal Ascending. And it gets batshit crazy. Do you you think we should go ahead and jump into it or wait? Yeah? Yeah, let's do it. All right, let's do it. I have not prepared for this, folks. So we're just going to roll with it, okay? Um... So, chapter 14, Goal Ascending, we see footsteps in this dank, dark place. People are walking through these crowded halls where there's a guy just laying in the hallway, staring into the middle distance. Somebody carries a lantern into a room, and we see Dr. Goal just laying on the floor of this dank, dark room. And he goes, no. No, I don't know you. I'm not Tom. I'm not Jack. I'm William. Of course, he's now Tom Mason. He's been essentially lobotomized. And that scene that he saw in the future earlier is now his present. He's been partially lobotomized and left in an insane asylum. And he's now a nobody of no importance. He's being checked on by a nurse and a couple of guys who are, for lack of better term, orderlies. One of the orderlies leave. And the other orderly and the nurse are like, yeah, 
huh, we're kind of alone down here. So he hikes up her skirts, and they decide to have fun time right in the cell. Ooh. With uh, Gull watching. That's... Because in their minds, Gull's a nobody. He's this lunatic who's just kept there sedated and calm. Ooh. So he's a nobody. And so they're going at squelchy times with him watching. And then the viewer's point is brought into his eye until the eye is complete blackness. Now remember, when Gull was first introduced in the story, we had those scenes of complete black where he's traveling through time back to see himself as a young boy going through that tunnel with his father on the ship. And now we're going through blackness again. Blackness is our transition into that fourth dimension that Hinton's son wrote the pamphlet on. So he's time traveling again. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when we see light again, it is that smokestack, the boat. We're back on the boat with the gulls flying overhead. And we see this sort of violent event that he witnessed as a boy with things falling from the sky. Motes of blood falling from the sky onto the boat. And remember, blood is that universal agent that brings spirits to bear. This is literally his spirit traveling through time, causing blood to erupt from the sky where the gulls are onto the boat. And we see him flying over these artifacts of London, these pieces of statuary like the obelisk that he took um, the, the carriage driver around to. And we kind of do a tour here as he flies over London and we see the pentagram formed by the points of his ritual. Uh, sorry, folks, the hounds are at it again. Yeah. We see him actually visit William Blake. Remember, William Blake said, create, not only being a poet, but created that image of the flea, that demonic reptilian flea licking the bowl of blood. Do you remember that? Yeah, that was disturbing. Blake said that he saw that in a vision and had to capture it. We now see Goal actually in William Blake's house looking at him, reaching for him, and Goal's hands are those reptilian flea hands. Ooh. He is that creature, now untethered from his body in space-time. He floats through time and space, visiting different events, visiting the major buildings that make up the points of his pentagram. He is goal ascending. He is going to ascend to the godhood. He visits a number of figures, including darting forward into the future to visit the future Yorkshire Ripper of the 1960s. Oh, him. And Jeez. the... It's implied that the events of Jack the Ripper and the Yorkshire Ripper are this symbolic continuing cycle of violence that's escalating and building and building to greater intensity, starting back in the 17th or 18th century through 19th and 20th. And I, I won't fill in too many of the details for people. You can read about the Yorkshire Ripper yourself. Um, but I thought it was an interesting little inclusion and an interesting way for Moore to hammer home this idea of this continually escalating violence over time. Mm -hmm. Not only escalating towards women, but escalating in society as well. Mm -hmm. And we just keep going as these visitations happen. I'm not going to go over each and all of them. We return to William Blake at one point and we see this rough sketch he makes of the flea and in it, we can see William Gull's face. Mm -hmm. 
What do you think of that? Interesting. And you can see how that in tiny miniature becomes that more rounded flea face in the woodprint design. Mm-hmm. It really does look like an actual sketch. I mean, look at if we flip from that to that. Mm-hmm. Back and forth, you can see it. Yeah, that's disturbing. It's an interesting job. Mm-hmm. And again, more pooling of blood. We see at one point, Gull's head just floating with light coming off it. Through the sky, scaring people. He is this divine figure raising to holy ascendance. We see him visiting the same house that he saw when he committed one of the murders and looked in the window and saw the future. Mm -hmm. We see the people there. We even see, years and years later, the Hanson driver who drove him around London. He visits the Hanson driver as a spirit and goes, No, you're dead! And loses control of the horse that then crushes and kills him right in front of the obelisk in central London. Oh. Which, by the way, the Hanson driver was an actual historical figure and did die this way. Oh. Right. Interesting. Um, and then, after all this little journey through time and space and more blood on the ground... We see Gaul ascend. He ascends into the sun itself. Remember, the sun is a masculine figure. He talked about that with Netley, the Hanson driver, when they were driving through London, that the obelisk points out up towards the sun, essentially like a giant penis. Because it's... No, I I mean, I'm being serious, actually. I, I, I know. Because it's a masculine figure and masculine energy drawing it from the sun. So, of course... You know, he, he was killing these women to keep down women because being male is divine and holy, while being women are dirty, evil whores. Of course. Um, which, actually, not that far off from how some Victorians thought. And some people today. Yeah. Like, apparently every elected official of Texas, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, so, they, he raises up into the masculine orb of the sun, which I guess is a giant unitesticle. A burning nuclear unitesticle. And swimming among, you know... I guess he's a sperm in the unitesticle of the sun. And he goes to meet the other sperm. And he sees there Horus and Jesus and Apollo. And he's going to join these masculine god figures. He's now ascending to one of them. And Horus says... Above this, there is naught save the last name of God. They seek not to prevent my ultimate ascent. But first, there's something they desire to show me. I move closer. Now, to be clear, that's not Horace saying that. That's Gull saying it. But Horace is pointing. And he's pointing down to the earth. And so Gull flies down to the earth and finds himself in Ireland, where Mary Kelly is alive and well. With daughters, who she's named after the women who died. Her friends, who were murdered. And she can sense Gull's presence, and she literally curses him off to hell. And he is sent, then, into nothingness. No godhead, no salvation, no divinity. He's just sent back into his body and dies. No, no final ascent to divinity, just nothingness. Killed all those people for nothing. And 
of course, a, a mother with daughters who wants to protect her daughters. Her words are about wanting to keep her daughters from harm, banishes who she calls the old devil. Mm. Um, oh, no. I think that was a couple of art majors. I can I can smell the pomp from here. Mm-hmm. You can always tell by that mixture of THC and cheap soap. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's it, it was definitely art majors. I yeah, I it's never good because it always gives the hounds gas for a few days. Yeah, I'm look. I, although they, they usually are calm. I mean, the THC that's built up usually gets them nice and mellow. Yeah, that is, that is a nice change. All right. So, that's from hell. Chapters 13 and 14. After this are the epilogue and the uh, the, goal, the goal catchers. Sorry, it took me a second to remember the title of the goal catchers. <laughs> My brain froze. So, I think that's what we're going to do next week is we're going to cover... Uh, the epilogue and some of the appendix notes, which I think are interesting. And then the week after that, we'll cover the goal catchers. How does that sound? Sounds good. And the appendix notes are things that are in the master edition of the original black and white that were added by Alan Moore as commentaries of things he might have missed. Now, I have a little bit of a secret for you. I've never actually read the appendix. Ooh. So I'm kind of looking forward to reading it and sharing with you things that I didn't catch uh, or think about. So it, it's a pretty lengthy appendix. I'm not going to go over every bit of it, uh, but I think it'll be fun. Especially where there's points of literary analysis. Now, at this point, we've covered plot for these two chapters, but let's talk about the literary value of it a little bit. Uh, the meat is obviously not in the chapter with Aberline, that was plot. But there's a lot of meat in the chapter with Gull. He is successful in his mystic ritual. He is ascending to the godhood. But then he fails because he never completed his ritual. And this woman is able to just sort of flippantly dismiss him. And there's an interesting question here. Is Alan Moore saying something uh, uh, sort of satirical? about this occultism and seeking of godhood um, and say or, or is he validating it and saying it would have all been cool for Gull if he just hadn't fucked up killing the wrong person at the end I mean which do you think it is maybe that last one actually maybe but but I, I know that uh, thematically I mean this is not a book that's kind on men's attitudes towards women yeah and, and justifiably so. I mean, yeah. the Victorians were not particularly kind. Towards anyone and, and that wasn't rich. We still have a lot of social issues to this day between the genders. Uh-huh. Um, so I think it's not one or the other. I think it's actually both. He, he was just screwed from the beginning. Well, I mean, it, it's more saying, here are all these things, and I'm going to make fun of them. Mm-hmm. But plot-wise, this was also a thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also Moore's point that... Evil can win. And that when evil loses, it's often because of its own self-destructive nature. Mm-hmm. Which he was definitely self-destructive in nature. Right. But also, thematically, let's keep in mind a very important point here. What defeated evil? 
A woman in the countryside raising her children with love. Mm-hmm. You know, that may sound like an overly simplistic message to people, but, you know, we leave this dirty urban environment of London where people's lives are disvalued, and then salvation comes in the rural countryside with a simple life. Um, that's He's certainly not the first writer to exemplify these values. Um, but I think they still speak in a lot of ways. And, and I'm a fairly urban person. I'm not going out to live in a cabin uh, on the moors of, you know, on the cliffs of Ireland or Scotland. Um, it's very appealing in theory, but I like to get my tandoori takeout. Yeah, same. Uh, but I do understand the appeal of that life and saying that urban life can lead to the sort of mental unhealth and that goal was, ta- you know, exemplified this urban mental unhealth and was seeking to propel it and amplify it in the 20th century, I don't think is that far off. I mean, in my own lifetime, I feel like as the world has become more urban, people have also become more nuts. At least in Western culture. Mm-hmm. So that's going to do it for now. Um, I know you've been reading some manga lately. Uh Spy X Family became hugely popular when the anime was released a few mm-hmm. weeks ago. And, uh, you know, I, I'm glad that unlike other art majors, you're showing you can actually read. <laughs> so, uh... Some I, of the I, others can read. Really? I said some. Okay. Uh, are you enjoying Spy X Family? Yeah, it's really good. Okay. I've read it as well, uh... I, I don't think it really merits much in the way of literary analysis, but it is a good, fun read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I recommend it to people who want a lighthearted, fun comedy mm-hmm. that's not too deep and just something to entertain themselves. Yeah. Okay. So keep reading comics, and we'll be back soon with the next of our Pride Month episodes talking about James Tinian IV. Bye. Bye.